Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> it is a pleasure to be with you today. Um, basically, this is my home church because I'm seven minutes away from this church. <laughs> um, you are going to have to forgive me because I'm not going to be here that many times, but... You know, I'm happy that Chaplain Mandisa and his family are with us this weekend. I've had a blast since last night with my new friend Jonah. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> before we move on, since I joined, uh, I'm a, let me just be quick to introduce myself. I am a fourth generation Adventist. Um, my dad was a pastor until he retired in 2005. And so I have followed into the family business of ministry. Amen. Ministry joined, uh, was baptized in 1979. Yes. And um, actually, this week I celebrate, uh, today is the 17th, right? The 19th would be the celebration of my birth in the church, my baptism, um, 1979. Uh, then joined the ministry in 1990, became a pastor in the, the at the time, Antilles Venezuelan Union in Venezuela. Was a pastor for 10 years. That's where I met my lovely wife, and that's where we had our daughter, Yvonne. Uh, you probably met her the last time we were here. She was with us. Um, <clears throat> and then in 2000, I accepted a call to be the chaplain at one of the hospitals, Seventh-day Adventist hospitals in the Orlando area. Worked there for 15 years. And then the division called me in, uh, in October of 2015 to be the assistant director for chaplaincy in the West Coast. And that's where I am right now. Chaplain Mendiza Mafora is here with us this weekend and his family, and I'm, I'm having a blast. And that's one of the reasons why we got this house up here, so the chaplains could come and spend some time with us and get, um, get renewed. Since I joined the division, every time I get invited to go preach, I always begin my sermons, begin my talks with a declaration and a confession. <clears throat> Here's my confession. I'm a sinner in need of grace. Were it not for the grace of Jesus Christ, I don't know where I'd be. That's my confession. My declaration is, I may have titles, I may have gone to school, I may have studied a lot of things, but I am just a beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. That's it. And we can find the bread in the Word of God. Amen. That's where we will be going to. <clears throat> so let's go back to our Bible text in Psalm 121. And I purposely gave you only the first Bible, the first text in 121, but we're going to read the whole thing now. It's just that it's part of the anticipation of the sermon, you know? You have to play a little bit with things like that. And I'm going to read from the King James Version just because I love the way it reads, 
I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heavens and earth. He will not suffer thy food to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, please speak to us. Amen. It makes perfect sense that if I preach my first sermon at the mountain church, I have to talk about mountains. <laughs> mountains have always held a special, uh, a special attention for me. Something special about mountains. I, my, I, I told you I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a pastor. And most of my life, I lived with my parents at the Seventh-day Adventist School in Venezuela, which was surrounded by mountains. Surrounded. And we would go every Sabbath afternoon would be the day for us to go out and climb the mountains. We had to be careful because there were a lot of snakes in those mountains. But it was okay. The Lord always protected us. The Lord was always there for us, even though we had many encounters with very poisonous snakes. We had many encounters with all kinds of animals and things like, you know, dangerous for us. The Lord always protected us. And, the, you know, the proof of that is we're here. We're here. Then when the Lord provided me with the wonderful wife that is from the Andes, from Venezuela, I realized there's always a connection between me and the mountains. That's why I hear this thing about, you know, I will lift up my eyes unto the mountains from whence comes my help. And the psalmist responds, the mountains kind of reminded David that the help comes from the Lord who made heavens and the earth. So today we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I'm going to take, take you to some mountains in the Bible and what I have learned from those mountains in the Bible, if you allow me. Let's go back to the Word of God once again, but not, this time we're going to go to 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings, and we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter. Now, oh, my, my Bible app decided to not work on me right now. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 17. And there's a wonderful story there that I love because it is one of the most interesting stories about... I got it. It's working now. Thank you. It's one of the most interesting stories about some of the things that happen in the to the people of, of God. And there is one of, the, one of the most interesting stories. By the way, if you ever want to uh, have a nice, interesting study about that mount that we're going to be climbing at this very moment, 
you, you, you have to connect the story of 1 Kings chapter 17 with Revelation chapter 16 and 17. And that's all I'm going to say about that because that's another sermon. All right? Now, on chapter 17, there is an interesting experience where Elijah calls upon the people of Israel and they all go to one mountain. Do you remember the name of that mountain? Carmel. Mount Carmel. And what is happening at Mount Carmel? There is a showdown. There's a showdown. There's no other way to say it. Elijah stands in front of the people and he tells them, choose you this day whom you will serve. How long are you going to be deciding if you're going to serve God or other gods or are you going to go after Baal? You remember that story? I'm, I'm trying to go fast through the story. But they are all in there. Everybody is standing at Mount Carmel. They are there because they want to know what is going to happen. And so there's a showdown. The altar of God is on one side and the altar to Baal is on the other side. Remember that? And there are four, over 400 priests of Baal that are there jumping up and down. And the decision is made. So we are going to ask our gods, little g gods and big g God, we're going to ask God and whatever... God sends fire from heaven. That will be the real God. Remember that? And so what happens? The story tells me that immediately the prophets of Baal started jumping up and down. They went into trance. The Bible commentary tells the story very interesting. If you want to have a little bit of a good reading this afternoon, you can, you can go and, and check it out. How the Bible commentary explains everything that happened at that moment. I'm not going to go into that because we have a lot of, uh, a lot of things to cover in our sermon today. But all I'm going to say is they started jumping up and down. They started dancing and screaming and doing all kinds of things. They were even cutting themselves, trying to call the attention of Baal. And Elijah, what is, what is he doing? He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's like, oh, maybe he is helping another god somewhere else. Maybe he is asleep and he's not listening. He cannot hear you. You guys are not being loud enough. Story goes that they just went and went and went and went and nothing happened. Then Elijah says, okay, guys, time's up. Now it's time for the real God. Big G God. He rebuilds the altar. That's something interesting that sometimes we miss when we're reading the story. Why? Because the altar was there. It had been abandoned. What is interesting about this is that next to the altar of God, they were worshiping other gods. And that teaches me a lesson. Sometimes in the, when, where we are supposed to be worshiping God, we are worshiping someone else. We need to be careful about that. We need to be really careful. 
Elijah goes in there and he rebuilds the altar. But not only that, he gets water around the altar. And he gets the entire place really, really wet. There was, there was rain up here a few days ago. And the wood that I'm supposed to use for my fireplace got wet. Well, I know I'm talking to people who know what happens when you have wet firewood. And then the Bible tells me that Elijah just knelt down, prayed, and then what happened? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the holocaust consumed the wood, consumed the water, even the stones were consumed. And what happened immediately, the people of Israel nailed down and they said, God is the real God and we're going to worship God from now on forever. Remember that? God is the real God and we will be worshiping God from now until the end. Something happened immediately after that. And I find it disturbing because immediately after that, on the euphoria of the, of the uh, yeah, get, they got really uh, enthused by, the, uh, by what had happened. And based on the euphoria, they just grabbed the 400 guys that were worshiping Baal. And rather than telling them, guys, it's time for you guys to change. It's time to you guys, for you guys to learn how to worship the real God. They just killed them all. And in history, I have learned that those who are oppressed, when they get out of oppression, they become the oppressors. So rather than using the power of God to save those who needed saving, they killed them. All right, I'm telling the story because this is setting the stage for the lesson of our sermon today. Immediately after what happened, the Bible tells me that Elijah helped Ahab get back to the palace. Remember that? Because it started raining again. It had been without rain for a long time, and it started raining again. So Elijah helps Ahab to get back to the palace. And Ahab goes to his wife, Jezebel, and tells her the story of what happened. Are you with me? I'm going to get closer to you because this part is important. He tells his wife about what has happened, and Jezebel sends Elijah a crisp email. <laughs> That's chapter 18 now. Come with me to chapter 18. Because Jezebel sends an email and says, So help me God, little G that if you're not like one of them by tomorrow, what is she saying? You killed my guys. I'm going to kill you. And this is, this is another story. Another lesson from this story. After a big showdown, there's always a letdown. Elijah just saw the power of God. 
he knelt down before that altar and he prayed and God answered his prayer. Did God not answer his prayer? In a mighty way? He saw how God was in control, has always been and will always be in control. I will lift up my eyes into the hills. From where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. He saw the help from God, didn't he? And when he hears the message from Jezebel, what happens to him? He gets scared and he runs 220 miles. He ran 220 miles. What happened to Elijah? He forgot how God had led him in the past. I believe there's a lady by the name Ellen G. White who says, we have nothing to fear about the future unless we forget how God has led us in the past. A day before Elijah had seen the power of God, no question about it. A day later, he's running for his life, 220 miles. What happened, Elijah? You forgot? The Bible tells me, if I read on, God went to Elijah and asked him, What happened? What is happening with you? He said, I am afraid. And then he said to God something interesting. He had what I call the pastor syndrome. Pastor, sorry for saying this, but I know I have had it myself. Mandisa, I know you've had it yourself, and I know you've had it too. We believe we're all that. Elijah told God, oh, I just had jealousy for you, God, because I'm the only one. And I can only see God looking at Elijah and say, you fool, I got 7,000 more. We just believe we're all that. Are you with me? And here's the other thing. God wakes up Elijah. He is laying down underneath a small tree. God wakes him up, sends his angels to feed him. Wakes him up. Elijah wakes up and walks even more. And then, not only that, he goes and hides in a cave. That's what the Bible tells me. He went and he, he hid in a cave. And God goes to him on that cave. And says to Elijah, now, this is where the center of my sermon is located. Chapter 18. Chapter 19, I'm sorry. Verse 10, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Two days before, the children of Israel had renewed their covenant. In two days. 
Throw down thy, uh, thine altars and slay thy prophets with the sword. They slain, they slain not God's prophet. They slain Baal's prophet. Verse 11. And he said, God spoke to Elijah and said, Go forth and stand on the mountain. That's what I read. Is that the same thing that is reading in your Bible? God is asking Elijah to get out of the cave and go stand in a mountain. Because there is no hope in a cave. There is no light in a cave. There is no, uh, there is no answers in a cave. The only thing you can find in a cave is bats and darkness. God comes to Elijah and says... Get out of this cave and go up in the mountain. I got to say this. We have heard the voice of God. We live in the mountain. You got it. <laughs> Guys, the Lord has been calling us to get out of those caves that we have caved down for ourselves. And we go hide ourselves in, our, in those caves. And the Lord says, no, I need you to get out of the cave and go up in the mountain. Because it is in the mountain where I'm going to show you my power. That's exactly what happened there. It was in the mountain where God showed Elijah his power. Today, I'm standing before you and I'm telling you, I, will like you I would like to invite you to, to climb with me to three mountains. And please climb those mountains every day. You may get tired, I know that, but it's okay. But you need to climb those three biblical mountains every single day. You may want to add more, that's okay. My sermon includes three. It's okay. You can add more if you want. But here's the first mountain that you need to climb every day. I want you to climb Mount Sinai every day. Why? Because when you climb Mount Sinai, there are two things that happen to you. Number one, like Moses, you will see the glory of God. Moses at Mount Sinai told the Lord, Lord, please show me thy glory. And the Lord said, I'm not going to show you my entire glory. I'm going to show you the Um, the, 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 the afterlight of my glory. And you know what happened to Moses when he saw that afterlight of God's glory? When he came down, the people of Israel asked him, would you please cover your face? There's a lot of light coming out of there uh, and, and you're glowing too much. So please cover your face. So that's the first thing that happens. When you climb Mount Sinai, you get to know God. Because at Mount Sinai, God identified himself to his people. Amen. I am the Lord thy God who took you out of Egypt, who saved you from Pharaoh. And because I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Etc., etc., etc. That's the other thing that you learn from Mount Sinai. And I realize I'm talking to Seventh day Adventist people. We have this thing about the law, and it's okay. We need to have it. Because what is salvation without, without obedience? We need to obey. And the thing we need to obey is what God has told us to do through. 
the Ten Commandments. We need to remember, remind ourselves of that every single day. Because when we forget what God wrote in His law, things that, are, that should be very clear become blurry. You know what I'm trying to say, don't you? And we need to stop thinking about those things. What is the least I can do to observe the commandments? That is not what God had in mind. What God had in mind, what He wrote the law in those stones, was that He wanted to have a relationship with His people, and relationships are supposed to go all the way. The world is filled with half, <clears throat> with half, uh, half-hearted relationships that are really not relationships. But God wants our all. The Bible I read, when the Israelites thought about what they learned on that mountain Sinai, you know what they say? They say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and soul. And then Jesus said, and love thy neighbor as yourself. So that's the first mountain I'm inviting you to climb every single day. Climb Mount Sinai so that you are reminded of what God expects of you every single day. Second mountain that I'm going to invite you to doesn't have a name, but there is something interesting in that mountain. Mark tells me in a comment that passes literally under the radar, and a lot of people doesn't realize that it says, Mark tells me that at Mount of Transfiguration, the only thing you see is Jesus Christ. And you may say, oh, but, but pastor, you, you kind of got the story wrong. Because at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples, only three of them, not all of them, so, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So, why do, you, why do you say that? Because right immediately after that, Mark, who tells the story, and he's telling the story after pa Peter told him what had happened, Mark says that immediately after they saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they turn around and they looked up and they only saw Jesus. You know how Paul expresses this? He says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, put your eyes on Jesus, the author of your faith. We need to stop looking at each other. Certainly don't look at me because I'm too ugly. We need to stop looking at each other. We need to start looking only at Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why. I learned this from an old pastor when I started my ministry. He pulled me aside. You know, as a young, young, young fellow, I, I started being a pastor when I was 20 years old. 
My first district was 12 churches, two schools, and a bakery. Yep. And <clears throat> one old pastor who had retired and lived in that place, he put me aside many times, and he, I made so many mistakes. I mean, come on, I still make so many, so many mistakes. But when you're 20 years old, you're supposed to be out there making mistakes, not being responsible for 12 churches, two schools, and a bakery. Anyways, so he pulled me aside. He sat me down many a times. And he said, Ivan, I'm going to teach you one thing. One thing is important that you understand this. And he said, yes, sir. What do, you, what do you want me to learn? He said, when you start comparing yourself to others, you're always going to find better ways that you're better than them. But when you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, Amen. you're only but a worm. So today, I'm asking you, go every day to Mount Sinai and also go every day to Mount of Transfiguration where you can only see Jesus Christ and compare yourself with Jesus and you will realize that you and I need so much. We need so much to make it. So, first mountain is Sinai. Second mountain is Mount of Transfiguration. The third mountain that I would like to invite you to climb every single day is an old mountain that is very painful. It's Mount Calvary. Because when you climb Mount Calvary every day, when you kneel before the, the, the cross, you realize that the one that hung on that tree did it only because of love. And did it. And he did not have to do it. He did that he hung on that tree, he hung on that cross, because he would rather, I love the way Max Lucado says, he would rather go to hell for you than to heaven without you. So when you realize that, you realize that Jesus hung on that tree and he hung on that tree even if I was the only one who needed saving. If I was the only person who needed the blood of Jesus Christ, he would have hung on that cross for me and for me only. Now think about that. Put your name in there. We repeat this. The, the most known Bible verse in the world is John 3.16 that goes something like, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Can you say that Bible text and put your name in there? For God so loved Ivan that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. So if Ivan believes in his only begotten son, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So on a daily basis, I would like to invite you to remember that Jesus hung on that tree for you. But also, the remembrance of that hanging on that tree also must bring to us the remembrance of close to that place, there was a tomb that three days later became empty. And you cannot go to Calvary and forget that there's a tomb close by that is empty. That's the problem with some of my friends from other denominations. They stay on the cross. They forget. He's alive. And he's interceding. But I'm going to close with this thought. You see, one of the biggest problems when Jesus came to this world was that when he came... The Jews were expecting a king, and they got a savior. Are you with me? When Jesus came the first time, the Jews were expecting a king, and they got a savior. Sadly, history tends to repeat itself. Because when Jesus comes again, people of this world have been waiting for a savior, and the one that is coming is a king. So when you climb those three mountains, remember that, what I'm telling you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming back. Being a hospital chaplain, I learned so many lessons, and I got to share with you this this story. This happened to me some time ago. And this will introduce our closing hymn. So if you guys, the musicians can start playing it, I appreciate it. I was in the hospital. It's about four, it's about 3.30, 3.45. My time to leave the hospital is at 4 o'clock. And at that time, my pager goes off. And there is a message in there. Chaplain Ivan, please go to the OR stat. To this day, I still don't understand what stat means. I just know that it means that I have to be there fast. (laughs) So I'm going fast to the operating room. It's the first time in all the years that I've been a chaplain that I get paged to go directly to the operating room. And the nurses tell me, the doctors are waiting for you. They want you to go inside the OR. What? Yes. So they pushed me to the place where I wash my hands and they put me on a bunny suit. And they cover my my face and they put gloves on me and they push me into an OR. How many of you have been inside an OR operating room for an operation or something like that? You know it's a a place with a lot of light. But for the life of me, I I go in there, I remember that, and I can close my eyes, and it was dark. There was light, but it was darkness. Because the only thing I could see was the faces of the people that were there. And the the eyes of everybody there had darkness in in their lights, in their eyes. The doctor that is operating on the patient tells me, Chaplain! Thank you for coming. Come over here. And I'm like, should I? And the nurses pushed me because I really didn't want to get close. The patient had opened 
his chest completely from here to here. And I saw the insights of a person for the first time in my life. And the doctor says to me, this is Mr. So-and-so, I can't even remember his name. He's been on this operating table for six hours now. He came with an aneurysm in the aorta. And we cannot, we have not been able to solve this problem. So we figured the only thing left to do is we want you chaplain to anoint him and pray. Okay. <laughs> so I started to pray. And you can put a gun to my head. I will not remember what I said in that prayer. I will not. All I can remember is that I said, Amen. And the vascular surgeon who had his hands inside the body of this person, immediately after I said, Amen, said, Got it. So he turned to the other physician that is in, that is in the room and says, You close him up. I'm going to go with the chaplain and talk to the family. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we got out of the operating room and he told the family, um, We have been operating many for many hours, as you know, um, the chaplain came in and he prayed. And after his prayer, we were able to stop the bleeding. It's touch and go there. We're going to go straight to the intensive care unit. He needs to be hooked up to machines. We need to do this very quickly. Remember the family, we were in Orlando, Florida. There's a lot of people coming from different places on vacation. And this is a family from Minnesota. I remember that. The wife of the patient was an elderly woman. So she sat on a wheelchair. And I started to push that wheelchair. Along with a, with a gurney that was taking the patient to the ICU. There were four people around that bed. Transport guy who's pushing the bed. A nurse. A respiratory therapist. And the surgeon. And myself with the wheelchair and we are going and the wife of the patient for some reason said oh your favorite hymn is the old rugged cross and immediately as if with guidance from the Lord five people around those two the bed and that wheelchair started singing on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. I've never heard that song sung so badly. We were all out of tune. But we sang all the way from the operating room to the intensive care unit. And we went inside that intensive care unit. They pulled out the bed that was inside the room and they kept the patient in the gurney that they brought from the OR. And we were singing that old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And he opened his eyes and looked to his wife. And with tubes going down his throat and with all those things that were happening, beeping, beeping and all that, he heard probably the last, uh, the last statement of that beautiful song. And with his eyes looked at his wife. And with tubes down in his throat, he said, I love you, and died. The last words he heard 
with the words of this beautiful hymn. Oh man, when I think about that, yeah, he died. I don't care that he died. I just care that he had the chance to say, I love you to his wife, and that he heard the words of his favorite hymn that reminded him that on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and pain. And also reminded him, that's what the, that hymn says, that in the end, that cross would be exchanged for a crown. All that I want to exchange that cross for a crown. Amen. Let's sing and close today with that beautiful message. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will clean cross and exchange that someday for a crown oh that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me for the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange the tomb day for a crown to the old rugged cross I will ever be true its shame and reproach gladly bear then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory 
forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Someday, pretty soon, I will exchange that old rugged cross for a wonderful crown of glory. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for the message to our hearts, for the mountains that remind us that in you we find life, that soon, very soon, you will exchange the cross of pain that we bear on this world for a crown of glory, and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow, for all things will be made new. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. What a blessing.